Welcome to the first hearing of the subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations on the State Department and USAID Management, Internal International Operations and Bilateral International Development. Uh, this is our first hearing. I first want to thank our ranking member, Haggerty, for his cooperation and help in putting together uh, this hearing. Uh, we're going to re rely very heavily on our ranking member, considering uh, his experience as a former ambassador to Japan and his private sector experience. Uh, so, um, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, I'm looking forward to working with you, and thank you very much for your help and cooperation and uh, the work of the subcommittee. We have a very important responsibility in this subcommittee, and I want to thank both Senator Menendez and Senator Risch for recognizing uh, the importance of this subcommittee and encouraging us to hold oversight hearings in regards to the areas of our responsibility, which include the State Department, USAID, the U.S. Agency for Global Media, Peace Corps, and the Millennium Challenge Corporation. So our responsibility is oversight. There are important issues such as diversity, recruitment, retention, economics, and security, dealing with our workforce that we need to uh, be knowledgeable and see the current status and what we can do better. Uh, we have to uh, work in a way to build the foundation for the reauthorization of the State Department's law. Uh, it used to be a regular process uh, for this committee, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to recommend to the full Senate a reauthorization bill for the State Department. We haven't done that for a number of years. I know our leadership on this committee would like to see that process reinstated. I hope that this subcommittee can provide some of the foundation for the reauthorization uh, of the uh, State Department itself. We need to address U.S. diplomacy in the 21st century. Uh, President Biden is, has made it very clear that our foreign policy will be grounded in our values, democratic institutions, good governance, anti-corruption, and advancement of human rights. This is our first hearing, and our topic couldn't be more timely, modernizing the State Department for the 21st century. We have a great panel of witnesses that can really help us, help us get started on this task. Uh, we, have, uh, we need a strong and high-performing State Department to meet the challenges of the 21st century. We have serious challenges on the rise of authoritarianism uh, and the decline of free states. We have a challenge uh, in supporting American businesses uh, globally on a fair playing field. We have the issues of climate change. We have negotiating ends of conflicts and preventing conflicts from occurring. We are, need to be the leader uh, in the global response to the pandemic. And we must assist American citizens uh, throughout the world. And this goes on and on and on, the important work of the State Department in the 21st century. The challenges within the State Department include diversity, inclusion, flexibility, efficiency, and accountability of our workforce. Uh, and I think we have gotten off to a good start under the Biden administration in the Biden and the budget that he has submitted to us. It would be, if passed by Congress, the largest increase in personnel in over a decade. Uh, and uh, I'll conclude my opening comments by quoting from the president. Uh, what he said when he was a candidate, vowed to rebuild a modern, agile U.S. Department of State, investing and re-empowering the finest diplomat corps in the world, and leveraging the full talent and richness of America's diversity. Uh, 
He then stated uh, that he pledged in a speech to the State Department to restore the health and morale of our foreign policy institutions. So I think we're off to a good start, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. But first, let me yield uh, to the ranking member, Senator Haggerty. Well, Chairman Cardin, I want to thank you for holding this hearing, and I want to thank you so much for inviting me to participate today. And I would be remiss if I didn't take this wonderful opportunity, the first time I've had a chance to do it publicly, to thank you for voting to confirm me about uh, a little more than four years ago to serve as a, a diplomat here. Uh, in, in, in this very body, and um, it was the greatest honor of a lifetime to represent our great nation uh, overseas. We're fortunate to have several people with the rank of ambassador with us today, and I think they share that same uh, sense of honor. Um, I also would like to compliment you, Mr. Chairman, on your support for me. When I served as an American diplomat, uh, it was particularly meaningful to have your help convening the resources I needed to be effective in my job as ambassador. And as I think about the effort that you helped me undertake when we were trying to fix a, an important process that advances America's interest overseas with respect to foreign military sales, your team came together and helped me put the resources in place and helped to build a modernization infrastructure to fix a very important process with, uh, within our State Department, within our federal government. And I particularly appreciate that engagement and that insight as a foundation for what we're trying to accomplish today. So thank you very much. And to the topic of of, under, of, of uh, modernizing uh, the State Department for the 21st century. I couldn't ask for a better leader and, and colleague to work on this. I'd also like to recognize our three witnesses who have graciously agreed to join us today. And I want to thank each of you for your service. We certainly look forward to hearing from you. As former ambassador of Japan, I had the privilege to serve alongside some of the brightest and the most capable men and women of the State Department. And because of their work and sacrifice, the U.S.-Japan Alliance remains the cornerstone of peace and prosperity throughout the Asia-Pacific region. I remember within weeks of arriving in Tokyo, the North Korean regime tested the resolve of the United States and the entire world by launching multiple ballistic missiles over Japan. Uh, then Secretary, Deputy Secretary Biden was very active in dealing with that uh, from here in Washington, and it was an interesting perspective for me and my family to be there as intercontinental ballistic missiles were being launched overhead. At that point, when I arrived, my very first day, I asked the team at Mission Japan to remember the reasons they joined the United States Department of State, to bring their very best performance to bear, because our nation needed their service, they needed, our nation needed our talents and our very best performance, and I would say that our team pulled together and delivered just that. I couldn't have been more proud to have seen my team stepped up, to step up when our country needed them, uh, when our nation needed them, and when I needed them to deliver. So I'm deeply appreciative of what the men and women of the State Department are capable of doing, and I've seen it in action. What we're here to discuss today is not about the commitment of the people of the State Department. Rather, the task at hand is to identify the aspects of the State Department that require urgent reform and determine the best way forward to achieve that goal. We should be bold in reimagining the State Department, and this should be guided by some very basic foundational questions. To name just a few, what is the purpose of embassies in the 21st century? How can the State Department attract, retain, and train the best talent? And what kind of infrastructure did the State Department need at home and abroad in the 21st century? I look forward to hearing from our witnesses on how we can reimagine American diplomacy for the 21st century. These are big issues that will not be resolved overnight, but we need to ask these big questions. 
I look forward to working with Senator Cardin in a constructive manner to identify and take concrete, tangible steps towards creating a new and modern State Department. I see three critical milestones that we should strive toward. First, Congress, as the ultimate objective, should pass new legislation to modernize the Foreign Service Act of 1980. Forty-one years have passed since the last major restructuring of the State Department, and we should seek to update and enhance the State Department for the 21st century. Second, as part of that effort to pass new legislation, Congress should form a bipartisan commission to examine every aspect of American diplomacy, drawing on the expertise of a wide group of people with relevant experience and insight to advise our subcommittee. And third, this committee should continue to hold a series of hearings on this subject. I look forward today to hearing from the witnesses, their ideas as to what Congress and the executive branch can undertake as we modernize the State Department for the 21st century. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you for your opening statement. I'll just point out, it was my pleasure to support your nomination, but Senator Alexander insisted that I support your Alexander. And I can never say no to Senator Alexander. You I understand. Good, you have a good friend and, and our former colleague. Thank you. Uh, we're very uh, fortunate to have three real experts on the State Department, and we thank you all. Two are here in person. One is here by WebEx. Uh, I'll introduce you in the order that we'll ask you to uh, give your presentations. Your full statements will be made part of the record, and you'll be able to proceed as you wish. First, to Stephen Began. Uh, it's good to have you back. Uh, uh, Mr. Began uh, has had three decades of international affairs experience, uh, most recently elevating to the Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, he worked very closely. He worked very closely with our committee, and I appreciated the conversations we had when you were Deputy Secretary of State. I always found them to be very candid and very informative. Uh, Mr. Began also has experience on the Hill uh, and a foreign policy uh, specialist uh, for Chief of Staff and for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as a National Security Advisor for Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. Our set second uh, witness will be Marcy Reese, uh, uh, Ambassador Reese, who had, was Chief of Mission at Pristina in 03 and 04, Albania 04, 07, Bulgaria 2012 through 15. So she's been, you've been Chief of Mission in three locations. Uh, that's quite an accomplishment. I just got back from a visit to Bulgaria and uh, could see firsthand the fruits of your work while you were ambassador. I think we've made progress and we had a very productive meeting under the umbrella of the OSCE. Um, Ambassador Reese was also on the negotiating team that negotiated the 2010 START Treaty with Russia. She was a Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasia Affairs from 2008 through 2009, was on the House Foreign Affairs Committee Staff Chair, and a Senior Fellow at the Future of Diplomacy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School Belfort Center for Science and International Affairs. That's a long title. Uh, and she co-authored a U.S. diplomatic service for the 21st century, which is very timely for our discussions today. Our third witness will be come, coming to us vis-a-vis -vis the internet, and that's Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter. She's the CEO of New America. Director of Policy Planning at the State Department from 2009 to 2011, and received the very prestigious uh, Secretary's Distinguished Service Award uh, for her diplomacy and work. 
So we have three very distinguished uh, uh, panelists, and we'll start uh, with Mr. Began. Thank you, Chairman Cardin and Ranking Member Haggerty uh, and distinguished members of the committee. It's a great honor to be here with you today to talk about this important topic. One week from today will mark the 232nd anniversary of the founding of the Department of State, an important institution which has played a central role in shaping the policies of our nation and shaping the outcomes of events in the world. The organization and structure of the State Department much less its role in the affairs of our country, has never been set in stone. Our founding fathers contended with this important topic in the early days of the Republic. Congress required Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, our eighth Secretary of State, in addition to his work leading the diplomatic corps, to also oversee the census and the patent office, to monitor laws of various states of the union, and to produce a report on the viability of national standards for weights and measures. And John Quincy Adams did all of this with a staff of 10. Adams would eventually install a management structure and a system that would be adapted and revamped and changed on the margins over the years and would serve the State Department all the way through the 21st century. For the department, its greatest asset has always been its people, their intelligence, commitment, and when called upon their bravery in the service of the American people. And it's my great honor to have worked alongside those talented individuals at the State Department over the past three years. I am pleased to be on a panel with two distinguished colleagues, Professor Slaughter's leadership in launching the State Department's first quadrennial diplomacy review, the QDDR, while she served as Director of Policy and Planning, was particularly important in highlighting the growing role of our embassies as platforms for interagency cooperation. And Ambassador Reed's recent report, which you referenced, Mr. Chairman, done with Ambassadors Nick Burns and Mark Grossman on the future of the Foreign Service is an important contribution to charting a way ahead for the diplomatic corps by some of our most distinguished alumni from the State Department. Throughout my time in the department, we strove together to make the world more free, more prosperous, and more democratic. And as I told the department's 76,000 person workforce, Foreign Service, Civil Service, and locally employed staff, in my first communication as Deputy Secretary of State, America's greatest strength has always been what the late Senator John McCain described as its hopeful vision of human progress. But change is needed, desperately and urgently so, if the department is going to continue to reflect the interests of the United States of America and the interests of the people in the employ of the Department of State. For my part, I have approached this question on how to design and create a modern State Department from the lessons I have learned about people, process, and policy during more, th more than three decades in government, the private sector, the non-governmental community. I have seen the State Department most recently from within as Deputy Secretary of State, but I've also seen it from the vantage point of the White House National Security Council from the perspective of a major global corporation working with the State Department in markets around the world from the perspective of several non-governmental non organizations that have been engaged in advancing U.S. values overseas, and most importantly from here, from the oversight perspective in the Congress as a staff member of this committee. My call for reform is not intended to be a criticism of the people working at the department. There's no question in my mind that the American people owe a deep gratitude for the myriad acts of sacrifice by State Department personnel. During my recent tenure at State, I witnessed how officers in Washington and around the world 
helped repatriate more than 100,000 American citizens who were trapped abroad in COVID-19 hotspots. I saw brave men and women who stayed at their posts in desperate conditions during this terrible pandemic, who took assignments in war zones like Iraq, where all too frequent attacks on our embassy buildings served as a constant risk to our diplomats. I have seen our teams deploy to South America, Africa, the Middle East, and the Korean Peninsula in attempt to end conflicts or limit the spread of weapons of mass destruction. And I have seen our people lead and show the best of America in globally aiding against famine and disease and helping refugees and those who live under dictatorships. There is much in the efforts of the State Department team for our government and our people to be proud of. But these same able public servants, if they were with us today, would likely be the most demanding among the voices calling for modernization and reforms of the department. This need for reform is seen in the stultifying effect of layers of bureaucracy that suffocate and discourage our diplomats. While immense improvements have been made in infrastructure of the department, it is, in my view, too costly, too slow to be executed, and still incapable of protecting our electronic communications. The footprint of the department leads close scrutiny as well. How do we perform at our most agile? Do we need fortress-like embassies, sometimes from which our diplomats cannot even venture in the face of local threats? And finally, how can the department partner with other instruments of American power and influence in the world as a force multiplier, including civil society groups and the enormous reach of the U.S. private sector? So Mr. Chairman, Senator Haggerty, for, members, uh, for a number of reasons, which I'll be pleased to elaborate further in our questions and answers, I strongly believe that the leadership needs to come from here, the United States Congress, in order to provoke and promote the kind of change that needs to occur. There are many worthy areas of review to ensure the 21st century State Department is fit, agile, and prepared to serve its critical role in the world. I look forward to discussing this further with you today. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your testimony. We'll now hear from Ambassador Reese. Is it on? No. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Haggerty, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to testify this afternoon. This subcommittee's inquiry into modernizing the State Department is a welcome initiative, and I am honored to have been invited to participate. In November 2020, the Kennedy School's Belfer Center issued a report entitled A U.S. Diplomatic Service for the 21st Century. I was one of three retired Foreign Service co-authors. The impetus for the project was our concern that the Foreign Service was facing a profound crisis that had developed over years and multiple administrations. Our career diplomats lacked the support, funding, training, career flexibility, and leadership development opportunities they needed. Worse, this was happening at the very time the United States was facing complex challenges globally, requiring vigorous, sophisticated diplomacy. To develop our ideas, we sought the advice of a wide cross-section of serving and former officials, members of Congress from both parties, staff, outside experts, and concerned Americans. Our conclusion was just as the nation invested time and resources in an ambitious program of reform for both its military and intelligence agencies in recent years, a serious reform program was now urgently needed for the Foreign Service. In our report, we suggest the President and the Congress launch the initiative 
by defining a new mission and mandate aimed at restoring the State Department's lead role in executing foreign policy and reaffirming ambassadors' roles as the President's personal representatives. Second, we recommend that Congress pass a new Foreign Service Act. In discussions with Pentagon leaders, they counseled that significant changes be included in legislation, as was done for the military in the Goldwater-Nichols Act. Third, we acknowledge deep reform will require the active participation and support of the Foreign Service, including by critically examining their own culture, to find ways to incentivize innovation, responsible risk-taking, inclusive management, and visionary leadership. Much has been written about the chronic failure to improve diversity and inclusion in the service despite efforts over decades. Our report recommends radical change in the way the United States recruits, educates, assigns, and promotes members of the Foreign Service. Our proposal for an ROTC-like program to expand recruitment of minorities and other members of underserved communities, as well as our call for regular publication of personnel statistics, are two of our ideas in which Congress would play a key role. We also recommend expanding education and training to a career-long process, as is the case for other competent diplomatic services and for our own military. Our Foreign Service Institute has made a start on a sequence of required courses. This should be expanded to significant blocks of training lasting several months at career thresholds. For such a stepped-up program of professionalization to succeed, we concluded a 15% personnel training float would be needed, another area for potential congressional action. We also recommended an overhaul of the personnel system to make it more flexible, transparent, and oriented to family needs. Two of our specific ideas were eliminating the division of Foreign Service officers into functional cones and a rigorous examination of overseas staffing with a view to better alignment of positions with current needs. To retain the best officers and prepare them for leadership, we must give them the opportunity to serve at progressively senior levels. The thought is not to eliminate political appointee ambassadors, many of whom have served with distinction. Rather, we propose to bolster nonpartisanship and strengthen the service by increasing the proportion of career professionals in leadership positions in Washington and filling a greater number of ambassadorships with career diplomats. We also offer two ideas aimed at giving our diplomacy added agility, both of which would require congressional support. The first would be a limited and well-defined mid-level entry program designed to address the need for new skills or knowledge areas. The second, a diplomatic reserve corps, would be aimed at giving the State Department the ability to surge to respond to unforeseen contingencies, such as natural disasters. Finally, we suggest that giving the service a new, modern name would send a powerful signal of transformation. Our suggestion is the United States Diplomatic Service because it puts the United States first, it correctly labels all employees diplomats, and it describes what our diplomats contribute, service to our nation. Thank you for your attention, and I would be pleased to respond to your questions. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Ambassador. We'll now hear uh, from, on the internet, uh, Dr. Slaughter. 
Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Haggerty and members of the uh, committee, I'm, I'm honored to be able to testify before you today, uh, even if it's long distance and virtual, and I don't have the little uh, thing to tell me when my five minutes are up, so I will pay attention to my own clock. Uh, I'm very uh, pleased to be able to talk about such an important subject. I want to take Senator Haggerty's invitation to be bold and to start by asking you to imagine what it what a, a core of representatives uh, really bringing the best of our country together could look like in representing us around the world. Uh, imagine these representatives uh, trained and sworn to advance US interests around the world, staffing embassies and missions or trade and cultural offices uh, who reflect the world and speak the world's languages fluently. So imagine African-Americans in Africa, Asians seeing Asian-Americans, Latin Americans seeing Latinx Americans, just as Europeans have long seen European Americans and Anglo-Saxons have seen Anglo-Saxon Americans. People who look and often sound like themselves, but who are unmistakably American. But this is not simply about identity being destiny, that you come from a certain country and you should be sent to that region. Quite the contrary. We need many more African-Americans who are fluent in Mandarin posted all over China, Arab-Americans speaking Russian posted from Moscow to Vladivostok, or indeed Hispanic-Americans speaking Swahili or Swedish uh, posted to Africa or Europe, or Europe. We are becoming a plurality country. Uh, we are a country that can reflect and connect the world. And if you look at the deepest ties between nations, the biggest flows of trade and investment and cultural exchanges, they're between the United States and Europe. That's because most of us came from Europe for a long time. But we can now have those relations around the world. And that diversity is a huge advantage in our competition with other nations. So note that I keep talking about representatives uh, rather than diplomats. I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to testify next to two public servants whom I deeply respect. And I have enormous regard for diplomats, but I think actually uh, we need more than diplomats. We need people from business, uh, from the civic sector, from education, uh, from sports, from the arts, uh, from religion, we need the full range of American talent representing us uh, abroad. As I think we all agree, the current Foreign Service uh, was created in 1925. It, it was a merger of the Consular Service uh, and the uh, Diplomatic Service. And although it has been reformed several times over the 20th century, uh, we, we are all talking about a new Foreign Service Act. I would go further than that. I would ask this committee to consider an overhaul of the Foreign Service that instead creates a new global service, open to anyone who is interested in serving the country as an official representative abroad, anyone who is willing to, to sign up for a seven to 10 year tour or possibly a five year renewable tour at any point in their career, as opposed to the current assumption that you sign up for 30 years 
making your way up a very steep ladder uh, in, in ways that honestly our young people just don't even recognize in any profession anymore. At best, they think of five, maybe 10 year uh, chunks of time. So we could be bringing people to represent us abroad from every different sector, uh, many of whom already bring language, linguistic skills, uh, tremendous cultural knowledge, as well as knowledge from many different uh, sectors. I think such a service would indeed uh, allow us to recruit the very best from across the country and to look like the country, but also, again, it would bring together the skill set needed to put together important public, private, and civic partnerships, which is how we're going to solve problems uh, in this century. We would still, of course, have rigorous selection criteria uh, into this global service. Uh, and we would we would overhaul uh, the foreign service examination or global service examination uh, and and training. Um, but again, what we would focus on is how to uh, empower this range of global representatives to represent us, but also to work not only with the diplomats of other nations, but the various sectors of other nations as well. So these are grand schemes again. Uh, I, you wanted bold suggestions. I think we should really think about what we would create if we were starting from scratch in this century and how we can best harness the tremendous talent in our country. Uh, how do we get this done? Senator Haggerty, you <laughs> anticipated me. There's a well-established playbook here, which is the playbook that was followed for the Goldwater-Nichols Commission, uh, the, the Goldwater-Nichols Act. Congress needs to appoint a commission, a bipartisan commission, uh, empowered certainly to work with the Foreign Service and the Foreign Service Union, but also to think much more broadly and boldly about where we need to go. I would also conclude by encouraging this committee to hold hearings, but to work as fast as possible. The administration's foreign policy team has many uh, pressing challenges, and this kind of structural reform is often at the bottom of the list. Uh, but indeed, as former Deputy Secretary Began said, in the end, our most important asset is our people. We need to be able to attract the best people, promote the best people, and again, reflect the country we are and we're becoming. Uh, I hope very much uh, that this subcommittee will be able to re to recommend some really bold changes uh, to create a global service that will include diplomats, but also development experts and people who are knowledgeable in the business sector, the civic sector, and many other sectors as well. I look forward to answering your questions and I thank you for your time. Well, let me, Dr. Slaughter, thank you for your testimony. And let me thank all three of our witnesses. You have given us some really um, bold suggestions and uh, ways in which we can try to improve uh, our diplomacy uh, around the world. Uh, we will start uh, five-minute rounds with Senator Kane. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair and Senator Haggerty. Thank you. And what, a, what a good hearing. Three great witnesses. Uh, the Belfort Center report has a lot of intriguing suggestions in it. Um, I, I think the U.S. diplomatic corps, rather than foreign service, to put U.S. first, put diplomats first, or U.S. global, 
core or global service, as uh, Professor Slaughter mentioned. There's intriguing aspects there, and there's other things about the report that I, I would dig into. But with only five minutes, I think I'll just ask one question and see if all three of you might address it. Um, figuring out the, the right structure and role for the State Department and its great employees in, in the 21st century right now and going forward, you have to analyze other pieces of the puzzle. And another significant one is the National Security Council. My observation during the time that I've been here, but I think it's a trend that maybe predated my coming in 2013, I certainly heard Senator McCain talk about this a lot, is as the NSC has grown, it's often sort of maybe sucked some of the expertise, power, decision-making, authority from State Department more into the White House. And Senator McCain leveled the same critique about it pulling some of the decision-making power from the Pentagon into the White House. He was sort of a critic of a large NSC, not, not because of just sheer size, but I think he wanted the DOD and state to be very empowered, both in the, uh, in the secretaries, but in everybody in those two important uh, parts of the executive branch to do the missions assigned to it. And he worried about a growing NSC as sort of centering power in the White House and, and sort of neutering to some degree state and DOD. So if, if each of the witnesses could address sort of NSC state balance as, as we think about um, this going forward, I would appreciate hearing your thoughts about it. I'll take a shot at that first, uh, Senator Kane. Thank you. The, um, it, you know, I have had the opportunity to view uh, this dynamic both as poacher and gamekeeper. Uh, <laughs> I, I, served, uh, I served as uh, a senior NSC staffer for President Bush and as Deputy Secretary uh, in the Trump administration. Um, these, uh, some of these, uh, uh, f uh, some of the phenomena that you describe uh, seem to be uh, endemic and eternal, but it doesn't mean they shouldn't be taken on. And you're absolutely right, and Senator McCain was absolutely right, that the agencies should be expected to be the lead executors of policy, and the Congress should expect that as well, because the agencies are, are answerable to the oversight of this committee, unlike the White House. And so the Congress and the uh, executive departments have a shared interest in this. Uh, some of it is personality driven, and it depends on who the national security advisor is, who the secretary is, uh, and who and, and where the president's preferences are. But structurally, a NSC of limited size and of a well-defined role as a coordinating body rather than as a policy-making body uh, do, in my view, produce the best outcome for government. And we've had national security advisors who have felt that way. Uh, Brent Scowcroft is famously the example. I think almost every national security advisor, when they ascend to that uh, uh, honorable position, attests to wanting to live up to the uh, to the legacy of, of uh, General Scowcroft, but few do. Uh, uh, the press of events, the priorities of the president, the, the um, intermingling of politics and policy uh, over time can erode the authorities of the State Department and, and draw those decisions to the to the NSC. But um, this is this is a process reform. Uh, I mentioned in my testimony, Senator Kane, that I look at it as as people, process, and policy uh, are the three legs of this stool. And getting the process right is incredibly important to having that empowered foreign service that Ambassador Rees and and, uh, and Dr. Slaughter have discussed. Great, Ambassador Rees. Thank you. 
Uh, well, first, I, I have to say that I, I agree with Steve Began and, and from the point of view that the National Security Council as a coordinating body works extremely well, and the example that he gave would have, would have been the one that I would have given as well. It, I think that the partnership between the National Security Council and the State Department is very important. And one way that it could be embodied, which we imagined in our report, was where the National Security Council sets up various committees to discuss different, uh, different problems and proposals, and that the State Department would chair those committees. And that would seem to be a formula for the partnership to work very well. Moreover, there's the point that uh, much of the staff of the National Security Council come from the State Department. Uh, and this is kind of, I would say, a force multiplier. So I think that that kind of uh, cooperative working relationship is uh, admirable and, and should be continued. I'm over my time, Mr. Chair. Could we ask Dr. Slaughter if she would want to weigh in just for a second? Thank you. Certainly. Thank you, Senator Kane, and it's good to see you. So I agree that if the National Security Council is too big, then they think they have the capacity to actually drive things rather than to coordinate, and that's a problem. I, they really should be appointing lead agencies. I think what uh, Ambassador Reese suggested in their report makes sense, but I would say they shouldn't, the, the NSC should be leaner. It should rely on the agencies, but probably not always uh, ask the, the State Department to chair. Part of what it has to do is also allow USAID or other agencies that really uh, often have tremendous knowledge uh, also to be able to participate. Senator Haggerty. Um, thank you, Chairman Cardin. And Senator Kane, I want to thank you very much for that insightful question. I would just like to add one thing because your time did run over, but I think I'd love to continue this conversation. Uh, I took a hard look at this when I served um, on a volunteer basis helping uh, the transition process in government. And back when, you know, during the 41st presidency, when General Scowcroft was running the NEC, the, the size of the NSC staff, and Steve, you'll help me with this, was about 50 to 70 people. Uh, I looked at it again in 2016, it was about 450. So that's a massive expansion, just if you look at the numbers alone. And so I think that we ought to constantly think about this and the scope of uh, our, our, our thought process here as we envisioning, reimagining, re I guess, our, our diplomacy going into the 21st century because the coordinating function, I agree with Dr. Slaughter, uh, certainly runs a great risk of, of, of being uh, overwhelmed with the driving function when you get an entity of that size. So thank you for raising that and I would encourage us to keep that in mind as we move forward. Um, I'd like to open with a, with a question for uh, Secretary Began. You know, inertia is the most powerful force in the universe. And you mentioned in your testimony uh, the, the fact that um, opinions can be long held, interests can be vested. Uh, change is challenging. You've had the experience in the corporate world and, 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 a, and, a, and a deep uh, experience here in government uh, dealing with, with the challenge of affecting change. But I'd like to ask you first, over 41 years since the last time this act was, was redone, much has happened. And in that context, what what would you perceive as the risk if we do not affect change at this point in time? Yes, thank you, Senator. Uh, the um, you know, 41 years uh, is, is, is much too long. Uh, just nearest and dearest to me, one of the most pressing issues I confronted as the Deputy Secretary of State was the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. That was the second global pandemic since 1980 that the United States has, has endured. 
The HIV-AIDS pandemic took the lives of 700,000 Americans. It's largely believed that that virus originated in Africa. And, and the uh, COVID-19, which is largely believed to have, have uh, originated in China, uh, has taken the life of 600,000 Americans. And yet in 2020, when it came time to respond to that pandemic, we had to build it on the fly. We were building the plane as we were flying it. Now the State Department and its incredible talent can overcome a lot of obstacles. But still, uh, something like a retired diplomatic corps like Ambassador Rees recommended would have been of enormous benefit to us, especially if people had experience in these things. But we need our diplomats out there at the front lines of where issues like global pandemics arise. And that's just one issue of dozens of issues that the nation is left exposed if we don't have a more agile and, and, uh, and, uh, and responsive diplomacy. And so um, I, 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 I was sobered by my experience as deputy. Uh, and, uh, and I think that this kind of thoughtful uh, reform and restructuring of the department can give us tools to respond to the, the crises of the future in a much better way. Thank you. I'd just like to follow up with another point uh, to both uh, yourself, Secretary Began, and to Dr. Slaughter. Uh, you both have spoken about the need to form a commission. Um, I'd, I'd love to get your input. We may not have uh, enough time today to do this, but both in terms of the process and the composition of that commission, uh, I agree with the, the notion to be bold. Uh, Dr. Slaughter, you referred to the roadmap already being in place from the Goldwater-Nichols um, Act, and I think that uh, we would benefit greatly from the learning and the experience that you all uh, have studied as we think about uh, the commission going forward. I'd love to get your comments. I'll start with you, Secretary Began. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator. The uh, so the commission is it can be a very useful way to do this, and and uh, I was uh, here for the Goldwater Nichols process and saw the enormous impact that it had on the structure of our Defense Department. Uh, it was uh, it, it was and is a, a lasting uh, improvement in our defense and probably uh, helped us prevail in the Cold War because of its effectiveness. We need we do need a similar thing, but um, that wasn't done outside of the outside of the work of the Armed Services Committee. It was done with the Armed Services Committee. And my only appeal would be that this committee maintain its leadership role and its counterpart in the House in, in, uh, in, in trying to affect that kind of change. You, can't, you can rely upon that broad set of expertise, and I agree completely with Dr. Slaughter. This is not something that the, the State Department or the, uh, the State Department career officials alone can resolve. This has to have outside perspective in, in from every dimension of American society. But... Um, this committee has to play a leading role in, uh, if that is going to be a successful effort. Uh, well put. I agree with that. Uh, Dr. Slaughter, we're running at the end of time, but a quick comment would be most appreciated. Well, I can be quick because I completely agree on two things. One, absolutely, Congress has to stay actively involved. Goldwater Nichols had the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies driving part of it, but the committees uh, drove it. Uh, and two, yes, it will only work if this is a congressional commission that then turns into legislation and not yet another report uh, that gets read but not implemented. Thank you. It's very interesting that the diplomacy is there to try to prevent conflict. It's one of its major responsibilities. If they're not successful, we have defense that can come to our rescue and provide the military might to deal with conflict. 
In the Defense Department and defense budget, we have built-in redundancies so that we can surge and take care of contingencies that could occur that's in our national security interests to defend against. But at state, we really do not have that capacity to surge. So, and I think we've missed opportunities where there were opportunities for us to make major advancements in building democratic states uh, to prevent uh, conflict. Uh, we, we, in some cases, acted just too slowly. And also, it's a challenge to get the international community to work in a, in a unified manner. So I'm interested in drilling down a little bit more on uh, the concept of the Diplomatic Reserve Corps and Global Service. It seems like these two are somewhat uh, aimed at, this, at a similar problem, and how that would uh, conform to the Foreign Service Act and the challenges that it might be presented under the Foreign Service Act in order to have this type of a core available uh, to serve diplomacy, particularly if we wish to surge in a particular area. So perhaps I'll start with Ambassador Reese because I think you, were, you, you had suggested the, uh, um, the uh, diplomatic corps and then perhaps uh, Dr. Slaughter on the, uh, on the um, global service. Uh, well, thank you, Senator Cardin. I, actually, I'm, I'm an example of what happens when a surge happens. Uh, I was a sitting ambassador in, Al in Albania, and I left my post in order to go to Iraq uh, to be the political military counselor there. And uh, the others who were at the top, on the top team all had been pulled from other posts in order, in order to go there. So the idea that we would have uh, a reserve corps which could be our surge capacity, I think, uh, is something that is really needed. And when you look at what the military has, um, the basic, I think we could use the same basic framework of regular service, of a willingness to be deployed worldwide, uh, and as a kind of a bank of skills and perhaps language capabilities. Uh, they would give service once a month the way a Reserve Corps does, and. Uh, and you could, you could use this with uh, retired Foreign Service officers, could be members, family members could be members. There are um, a lot of interesting ways that this, uh, that this kind of uh, a core could be put together. And I, I, I think it's very much needed. As you say, we don't, we don't have uh, a reserve of any sort, and, and this would be a way to do it. Dr. Slaughter? I strongly agree that we need more reserve capacity. Uh, again, the idea of the global service is that you go beyond diplomatic capacity, that you also have development expertise. I'm reading a wonderful book right now by Fatima Sumar, who served uh, for, under Senator Kerry when he was the, at the SFRC, talking about being a development diplomat, needing both those skills. Uh, and again, uh, needing business skills, working with civil society. Uh, my father served in the Navy active duty only for three years, but he was in the Naval Reserve for decades. Uh, and so I would encourage us to think about connecting the idea of a Reserve Corps to a way of serving in whatever service we call it for less than 30 years. Obviously, not everybody stays in for 30 years, but the point is you have to start 
uh, at the bottom and work your way up. I want us to be able to see a leading NGO leader or a top business person or a university professor who then says, you know, I want to serve my country for, again, could be seven to 10 years, five years renewable. Uh, I'll do the training, uh, but I'm not going to follow this traditional ladder and then allow all those folks to be part of our reserve. Thank you. Uh, each one of you have mentioned the issue of our workforce and diversity, and I, I want to drill down a little bit on the, the workforce diversity issue. We, we obviously want our workforce to reflect the diversity of our nation, but also the diversity of the global community, and that's not an easy assignment. Historically, there have been challenges uh, in the diversity at the State Department. When I look at our, the, the resources that we are spending, I see that in training we spend about 50 percent of the funds for language training, and yet we find that we have in at least one out of every four assignments that require language skills, the minimum standards are not being met. And then lastly, there is the issue of diversity as it relates to the assignment that may be not as welcomed by the host country uh, and there could be safety issues. Should that even be a consideration uh, in our assignments at the State Department? Uh, I welcome your thoughts as to how we deal holistically with this diversity issue to make sure that our workforce has the best diversity to carry out the mission that we have in diplomacy. Mr. Chairman, that was an issue that uh, uh, I spent an enormous amount of time over the past year uh, tackling and working very closely with uh, different focus groups inside the department, including mid-career people, to try to uh, get a sounding often anecdotal, but nonetheless, a large number uh, on what were driving their choices at the middle of their career in the State Department. And also, um, the State Department has a tremendous asset in a number of affinity groups, which uh, can help communicate with leadership on the interests of, of different parts of the department. I found, uh, I found uh, it's simplest to, to break this down into three particular areas. One is recruitment. The second is development, and the third is retention. And within that, all three have to be right. The State Department actually is doing better than it has in the past in recruitment. The funnel is open much more wider uh, to Americans to join the department. And the A100 classes, the entry-level classes that I saw during my tenure were impressively diverse and, and full of just the, uh, the most amazing uh, young and, and not-so-young talent because we recruit people from uh, all ages as well. But we are definitely having a problem at the middle, mid-career level. Uh, there is something that's happening in the State Department career cycle that's affecting uh, uh, our employees, and particularly our, our, uh, our people of color, And because the numbers start to shift when you get to about 10 years in the department. I think it has a lot to do with our training development. It has a lot to do with our promotional uh, uh, processes in the department, and both of those uh, deserve very close scrutiny. Training somebody to advance inside the organization is the best way to signal to them that there's a future for them in the organization. When you don't invest in training them, uh, and if, if the leadership isn't there to recruit them for promotional opportunities, uh, it's very easy for them to interpret that as a signal that they're not wanted in the department. And, and because the State department, department is still able to attract the best talent in this country, they're also at risk. Uh, the State Department... Uh, has to offer a better value proposition for every employee 10 years in 
or we'll lose them to the private sector or to NGOs or nonprofits, or they'll simply choose to, to stay home uh, with their families uh, where they may make a, a better work-life balance than they get in the department. Ambassador Reese. I, I agree that the mid-level is a problem. One of the things that we heard a great deal from uh, people with whom we spoke was that the first-time managers were, uh, were the ones that really needed the training on how to create an atmosphere of inclusiveness. And in our proposal, we suggest that there ought to be um, significant periods of training at the various levels of the Foreign Service, but that one in particular would be very important. And the second point that I'd make about this is we have to have accountability at every level. We need to hold officers accountable for promoting uh, diversity and inclusion in the service, each one. So that means taking it into account in promotion, uh, taking it into account in assignment, whether that officer has shown themselves to be uh, a person who does promote a, a, an atmosphere of conclusion, inclusion uh, in his, work, his or her work unit. Uh, Dr. Slaughter, in answering this question, uh, it's clear we need leadership at the State Department to implement the type of recommendations that we just heard from. Is there a role that Congress can play in advancing these priorities uh, on diversity? I think so. I think again, um, we've got we've got a huge number of Americans now who grow up bilingual in bilingual in many, many languages, far more than, than a couple of decades ago. So we have a lot of that talent already out there. One of the things that Congress can do again is to uh, overhaul the, the way we think about these tours of duty to attract more folks. But the other is we've got this three-year tour and afterwards you're often sent, say you're in Vietnam, you might be sent to Peru you're not likely to be sent to Japan, in part because of fears that you'll go native, that you'll, you'll spend too much time in one region. Other foreign services don't do that, right? They, you, you know one Asian language and then you learn another. Uh, and other ways of, of allowing people to stay longer, there's a lot of room there, I think, for recruiting differently. Uh, and yes, training and management, always very important, but also looking at what are our rules about how we allow people to bring in expertise and then to build on it uh, at, from their posts. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Well, if you'll indulge me, Senator Cardin, I might just carry forward a few further questions that this sure. conversation has sparked. I was particularly intrigued by Dr. Slaughter's perspective on uh, bringing in new types of people making the system more diverse, allowing us access to new types of talent pools. But it struck me at the same time, uh, the, and, and, and Ambassador Reich, you, you participated in the Harvard study on reimagining the uh, American di diplomacy in our foreign service. Something that, uh, that, that came from that study, uh, the Harvard study was talking about the need for changing the culture in the department. And the study talked about an internal caste system I think about the, the, the idea that Dr. Slaughter brings to bear, which I find quite attractive, but at the same time, acknowledging the reality that I saw when I served as an ambassador myself within the State Department. And here I'm talking about the difference in treatment between a foreign service officer and a civil servant. 
Um, you know, I, I would think, and again, my private sector experience is that merit should be the primary driver of how a person is promoted, how a person is treated within the department. But there very, there very much is a sense that there is an internal caste system within the State Department today. We're talking about ways to reimagine that, I know, but I think it's a very real concern. And, you know, I, I think that uh, a system that puts a priority on personnel category, on tenure, rather than merit is something that seriously needs to be re-examined. Re I think we all know the case, uh, I, I won't mention the name, of, uh, of a civil servant that was recruited by an ambassador to be a DCM, a deputy chief of mission, the chief operating officer, because that ambassador felt that the person had the management talent, I presume, that they, they wanted to see. Uh, yet we, we had um, the Foreign Service Grievance Board rule that ind that individual had to return to Washington. They filed a complaint. The union filed a complaint to not allow that to happen. It required Secretary Albright to intervene to change that situation. And that sends a very troubling message uh, to, to the, the folks at the State Department. It reinforces this caste system sort of perspective. And it's something that uh, I hope that we'll tackle. Um, Ambassador Reese, I'd like to get your perspective on how we would go about uh, addressing the, the way that the American Foreign Service Association looks at the, the, the building there, how we go about uh, including our civil servants more, you know, in, in a greater fashion, and how we send the right sort of message uh, as we help think through how the State Department determines assignments. I've been told your mic is not on, if you could turn the mic on. It doesn't seem to like my thumb here. Yeah, it's, it's on now. It's on now, thank you. Uh, I, I, I think as we approach these problems, uh, we, we will see that we are relying more and more on civil servants. If I could say something about the question of the caste system, um, our reference to the caste system had to do with the uh, division into cones and our recommendation that we abolish those cones uh, as a way of sort of racking and stacking uh, foreign service officers and, and consider all of our officers to be multifunctional and expect them to, uh, to be expert in, in all the different areas. I certainly saw that conal uh, hierarchy as well in my embassy, but I was thinking particularly, it at least brought to mind, that, that term brought to mind the difference in perspective of great, you know, great civil servant staff Mm -hmm. that we have in the State Department with long institutional knowledge. And 
you know, I, I think we have a lot of opportunity there. Um, Secretary Biggin, I know you spent time on this issue too. I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts. It was not easy uh, to manage uh, the multifaceted Department of State uh, because um, competition for assignments and the frequency of rotations led to um, led to uh, a, a constant reward and constant disappointment by the people who were uh, seeking advancement in the uh, in the building. And I tried a couple of times to wade in to manage expectations, and I think ham-fistedly uh, the. the um, this requires a very deep rethink. Mm -hmm. uh, Ambassador Rees does mention that the, 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 the largest proportion of civil service employees are in functional uh, bureaus, but that's not the entirety of it. So our, we, we do have blends of civil service and foreign service, including uh, in the embassies and including up to the ranks of ambassador. Uh, and that, that um, blurred line between the two invites all sorts of misperception, including the perception that the, uh, there is a caste system. That, not to mention the compensation levels and the personnel practices mm -hmm. and the legal strictures are all different, and, and, and yet uh, these people are coexisting within the same Department of State is, is a challenge to manage. We also have a third set of employees, which are our locally employed staff. At least the line is there a little bit more clear. Those are non-U.S. citizens working in support of the Department's mission abroad. And then we have contractors as well. Who come in, and uh, I I think uh, there's an opportunity here for a complete rethink of how we manage that blended workforce and how we lead that blended workforce uh, to uh, to ensure we don't have these this kind of perception that uh, that there are uh, there are different castes inside the department. That that perception is a real one and exists. I know it. On a final note, I just like to underscore a point that you made about training. As a business person, when I came into my role as ambassador, and I keep focusing back on the past, but that's it's a very recent experience for me. Um, I, I was I was shocked at the lack of relevant training. There's a tremendous amount of language training that goes on. If you look at the budget, we spend a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of hours on training people in languages, and they count that as training in the in the way they capture it. There's there's a lot of time spent on orientation. I went through it myself for a month. Uh, going through an orientation process. But if you look at functional training, at geographic area training, the types of things that Ambassador Reese talked about, there's a real dearth of training there. That was certainly my perception. Now, we rely on experience and hopefully assigning a, a junior person to a more senior person that has experience in the area, but you know how the rotation system works. Yeah. And a lot of times that falls through. Well, I, I want to amplify what Ambassador Reese said because um, it was in slightly technical language and maybe maybe uh, it, it didn't register. She said 15% of the State Department's workforce should be basically in in training at any given time. That that doesn't happen today. And in fact, oftentimes uh, with both the pace of our rotation and the, and the pressing needs to get new personnel out to post, um, supervisors will press people to start their assignment and, and to forego training. The, minute, the Pentagon would never do that. The United States military would never take somebody uh, off a deployment and put them onto a new deployment. It may be in the most critical you know, needs of the country, but as a routine matter, that would be unforgivable. We always, we, you know, the, the way the Pentagon has a, a unit deployed is there's one training to go to deployment, there's one deployed, and then the one that was deployed is back in training again afterwards. State Department doesn't preserve that ability for our officers to do so, and we have to. Now, whether that whether we shrink the mission, improve, increase the size of the, the people, or just enforce it upon the existing organization as it is, 
we have to, and it's not just management training, it's not just uh, le uh, issues training, it's leadership training too. I, I uh, have a, 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 pet, a pet view, that uh, pet theory, that a lot of our diversity issues are bad leadership. Mm -hmm. And we just need to train people to not make hasty or biased decisions, but to reflect and make seasoned decisions. And that is a responsibility of leadership because a diverse organization is a stronger organization for the United States of America or for the private sector and a corporation. But it starts with the leaders and we have to train the leaders. Thank you. Um, I want to add one additional point to this um, diversity of assignments that we have in the State Department. You've already mentioned uh, the potential challenge between those that are in functional bureaus and those that are in missions and the coordination and perhaps bureaucracy, uh, the responsibilities of the chief of mission. And then we have special representatives that we have proliferated over a long period of time. We tried to contract that in the last Congress, and I think we had some success in doing that. But uh, are we creating too many additional lines of responsibility rather than trying to coordinate things better? Uh, every time we have a change of administration by party, we get all the confirmation hearings here in the United States uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee and I don't think we realized how many different bureaus we have and how many different positions that have to get confirmed by the United States Senate. Uh, and a lot of these positions will not be confirmed for a long period of time because of the volume, sheer volume of this. Uh, as we look at doing things more efficiently, are we just creating a special person for every time we have an issue rather than trying to empower the structure itself to be more efficient? <laughs> Again, gamekeeper and poacher here uh, speaking. Uh, I, I've long advocated uh, that we minimize, probably not eliminate, but minimize special representatives. Um, they can, there can be good reasons for them. It can be an issue that is of, of such priority that needs that focus. And both Congress's uh, legislation and the executive branch's own decisions have created these positions. Um, but as a general rule, uh, we should empower the bureaus in the State Department to have responsibility for the full set of issues. That I, I think that, uh, I'm a, I'm a, again, process is one of the three legs of the stool that I think we need to look at, and a good process is a good, flat organization uh, that has uh, a clear lines of authority in the corporate world. That That's what uh, leaders aspire to, and in, 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 in the federal government, it should be the same. The um, uh, There are good reasons for special representatives at time. It's an issue so compelling, so urgent. Uh, or, uh, for example, in the case of North Korea, where we didn't have, we don't have an embassy and in, in, uh, in personnel in the country. Um, at least, uh, you know, there's there's a, uh, a vacuum there that could be filled with a special representative. But it also can be an admission of failure that 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 the either the speed of confirmation for officials on the issue, which is another issue that the department grapples with across administrations, or uh, or uh, an absence of leadership inside the department leads to the, the, the Congress mandating the creation of a special representative. Um, I think we should be very, very judicious. I don't want to take a blanket uh, rule to it, but I think the special representatives should be the exception. Ambassador Reese, any comment on that? I agree with Steve. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Dr. Slaughter? Yes. Uh, I, I 
I actually used to sit in my office in government and imagine Google for government. I used to think if I could just, you know, a problem would come across my desk. It could be a diplomatic problem, a development problem. And I thought if I could just Google everybody in this building who has really specific expertise and put them together on a task force, and then, you know, that would dissolve once the moment was over, a little more like consulting. It would be so valuable. Obviously, that can't happen, but the stovepiping in, in these rigid vertical lines means we we don't tap a lot of our talent uh, and so often what happens with these special representatives is they're the people who can cross cut i would suggest that if you change the nature of the people who serve you will find that more of them have both the outside stature because that's part of it you're bringing people in who you know a former senator a former ceo uh, who has outside stature to to corral all the different uh, actors uh, and report to the president or the secretary on a problem. If you change the folks who are in the service and you give them much more ability again to cut across different issues also based on their outside experience, it may well be that we won't need uh, the per or we won't have the perceived need constantly to go outside. Uh, thank you for that response. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chairman Carden, I would just add one comment to that very insightful question, and that is we should look at this in the scope of uh, moving forward. Um, I saw precisely the same thing. Uh, an embassy that was full of talent, uh, a State Department that had tremendous talent, and the need for these sort of cross-cutting uh, skill sets and, and, and teams to function well together. Steve Began was a great example of somebody that we brought in, I think, in an appropriate role to serve as our special envoy for North Korea at the outset. But at the same time, uh, the system doesn't reward cutting across. The system uh, is, I think, fairly rigid in, in, in many respects, and it takes extra effort to do that. Um, I think we need to look at the personnel system and create the opportunity in the environment to, to, to make that possible. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Hargrady. Let me just make an observation. Uh, you all have indicated we need to take a fresh look at the State Department and diplomacy for the 21st century and that we haven't done that for a long time, and that the any administration is so busy on so many different things that this is not going to be a high priority and therefore gets sort of pushed uh, to the back. So that we have a responsibility in Congress to figure out a way forward uh, to deal with how we can get our input into having the most efficient, effective uh, diplomatic agency as we possibly can. So we're going to continue to try to figure out the way forward, whether it's a commission or whether it's a work of this committee, whether it's additional hearings, we're going to, uh, we're going to figure out a way to move forward. But it seems to me that one area that came out of this hearing is training, that we could really drill down and try to do something specific to deal with the training uh, uh, programs it does appear to me that it's inadequate from the point of view of the resources that are being devoted to training. It seems to me that we're missing the opportunity to retain and promote a more diverse workforce by the use of training. Uh, it seems to me that we have gaps because of how we don't train for certain areas and have concentrated on traditional training, which may not be the most important for the 21st century and the needs that we have in the 21st century. So I think training does offer an opportunity for us to make some maybe immediate progress uh, in, in looking at uh, it this year. 
I also think the recommendations for surge capacity, whether it's a reserve corps or whether it's, it's global service or some form of uh, utilizing talent that's out there uh, to help uh, backfill, particularly when uh, key personnel are taken out of a, a mission in order to deal with a problem somewhere in the world is, is something that we need. I just came back from Bulgaria, uh, and um, which uh, you could appreciate, uh, and uh, or maybe it was Austria. It was also in Austria, where they backfilled with people that really were not at all familiar with the problems in the country. It doesn't mean that they're not handling our mission there, but it's it would be, I think, better if we had a broader pool that we could utilize to meet our diplomatic missions when we have vacancies be, for whatever reason. In this case, we don't have confirmed ambassadors, so we had, and our chief of mission had to go home for a specific reason. Our deputy DCM had to go home for a particular uh, reason. So we had no one to actually be there. So we had to bring someone in who, who was a quick learn, but that's fine. But it seems to me there could be a better and more efficient way to, to deal with those types of problems. And then you mentioned just in passing the Foreign Service Act, I think it really is time for us to take a look at the Foreign Service Act, working with the stakeholders to see whether we can't uh, update uh, those laws. So I think there's a lot of areas that we can advance. I think all three of you have really helped us in trying to focus on uh, what we can do. This is our first hearing. Uh, this uh, subcommittee was not terribly active in the last Congress. We intend to be a lot more active in this Congress. And I, again, I thank Senator Haggerty for his, his commitment and interest and his background, which can really help us in dealing with these issues. Now, does, how long do you keep the committee open? Anybody know? I've been advised that the, the record will stay open until the end of the week in the event that any member asks questions for the record. Uh, and again, I thank our witnesses for their participation uh, in, in this hearing. And with that, the subcommittee will stand adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.